Hi, welcome to Disrupting Death. I'm Kathy Cordes Miller. And I'm Carrie Lynn Durant. Carrie, I had the best time yesterday. I went to a conversation at one of my favorite spaces, Entershine, which is an independent bookstore here in Thunder Bay. Ooh. It was a conversation between Michael Sabota, who is Thunder Bay legend here. Indeed, indeed. And Jill Bodak, who is going to be our guest today on the podcast. Oh, wonderful. Jill, as you know, wrote a book called Loved Into Being, Reflections on Stroke and Being Indestructible. And Jill is a fellow Thunder Bay person. She grew up here in the north and understands when we say it's cold outside, we are not Southern Ontario cold. Oh, hey, hey, Jill... hey. <laughs> and we know snow. Anyhow, weather aside, Jill herself is an osteopath. And she wrote this book about how she accompanied her dad throughout his stroke recovery. And then how his life ended using MAID. And she's going to be here today to talk to us about that experience. And while the majority of her book is about loving her dad, is about supporting him through the stroke, we're going to focus our conversation on the medical assistance in dying piece and how that really reflected how her fabulous and much-loved dad, Bill Bodak, lived until he died. I think we should get into the conversation. I can't wait for you to meet her. Let's get the conversation started. Excellent. All right, Jill, thanks again for agreeing to chat with us today. And can we start off with, can you tell us a little bit about your dad, about Bill? I would love to. So my dad, Bill Bodak, was born and raised in Thunder Bay. He was 61 years old when he was on a ski trip in Kelowna with his cousins and some friends. Prior to that ski trip, he had a long career as a high school teacher in Thunder Bay he built houses and renovated bathrooms. He was a hockey player and a water skier, a father of three semi-adults or like people attempting to be adults. And I'm one of them, the eldest one of them. And uh, yeah, he was this vividly, monstrously, endlessly alive human being and January 27th of 2020, he had a really big stroke on Big White Ski Hill in Kelowna, BC. And then on December 6th of 2022, he died by medical assistance in dying. And in the time that passed between his stroke and his death, I wrote a book about us. Thank you. And my sense, because Jill, you and I have shared geographical space and each call Thunder Bay home or have called Thunder Bay home, that your dad was extremely well-loved and well-respected in our community. And we're going to get to this, but I got sent a Facebook post the night before your dad died from a whole bunch of people who know that I'm interested in medical assistance and dying and thought I would love to hear about the shout out that your family did 
to let people know what was going on in your lives. So it sounds like as a family unit, you have lived this out loud. Absolutely. And thank you for accentuating the point that my dad couldn't be more from Thunder Bay. He was the epitome of a Northwestern Ontario white dad. Um, (laughs) In his lifestyle, in his hobbies, in his beer drinking, in his exuberance. And he was and is so connected to the city, to the landscape, to the weather. I feel him in all of those things. And I think your book, Jill, Loved Into Being, really kind of brings that forward about who he was and continues to be. Both Carolyn and I talk a lot about grief and we believe strongly that you don't let people go after they die. Your relationship shifts. And as Thomas Attic says, you move in from loving and presence to loving and absence. And to me, your book is such a way of showing and honoring your dad. Thank you. So Medical Assistance in Dying is one small piece of your book. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about today. And so if we can kind of back up a little bit, was made something that your family talked about? Was this something that was part of your conversations over dinner? (laughs) (laughs) Well, before my dad got sick, shortly before my dad got sick, A friend of a friend of his was going through the maid process, I believe for his mother. And I remember having a conversation with my dad because some people in his immediate orbit were feeling really uncomfortable about this decision. And so he was interfacing with some friends who were kind of against the idea. Like, I don't want her to go this way. I don't want her to choose this thing. And when my dad talked to me about it, he said, oh, I get it. I get it. If that were me or my mother or anyone that I loved, I think it's up to you how you want to do the finish line. And I think it's up to you around, you know, when the story ends. And I remember that conversation with him because we didn't have a lot of really deep conversations in that way. But I think he knew that me personally, I work in the world of wellness I'm kind of discussing aging, illness, and dying with people all the time, what it's like to live in a body that's mortal. And so I knew he knew he could talk to me about that. And then once his stroke happened, he was in this immediate circumstance where my siblings and I, the people that were there, were like, oh, God, let's end this now. This is so awful for him. And in that immediate post-stroke juncture, He didn't qualify for MAID by any means. He was incapacitated beyond any ability to understand what that would mean or look like. He couldn't consent. So then throughout the book, I sort of follow this idea. Kind of accidentally, it's dropped in throughout. I I went back to read my old journals. You know, once he had decided to, to die at the end, I went back to the journals at the beginning and I was like, oh, we've kind of been talking about MAID all along and it hasn't been accessible to him. And so yes, we talked about it 
It was never something in the circles of my family that was taboo or off limits, but it was something that in the early stages of our experience was not an option for my dad. And I think that a part of the story that I want to share is that his was a triumphant arrival at MAID. He had to work really hard to get to the point where he had the right to choose how he wanted his story to end. And his recovery, though I didn't know it at the time, was in essence him reclaiming enough agency in his own life and body to say how he wanted it to go. I love that, that triumphant recovery to be able to reclaim his agency. And strokes are something that have been in my home as well. My mom has had a couple of strokes. And so I can begin to imagine that reclamation piece and that need to get back to that opportunity to be able to talk about what matters to you. Absolutely. I think you've done us such a favor because you're segueing into the second question we have for you. I know that Bill predeceased his mother, if I understand that correctly. You've described that the family was very open and things were discussed. I'm just wondering if there was any intergenerational or any sort of feelings from other members of the family about Bill's decision. Yeah. I guess what I want to say about that is that everyone's afraid of death. So the idea of medical assistance in dying, it's like it's filtered through each individual's age, upbringing, religion, how many people they've already lost, whether or not they've never lost anyone. And so for sure in my family, because it spans three generations, we have different perspectives on where we're at with our relationship with death all of them underpinned by the fact that nobody really wants to die and most people don't really want to talk about it. And I will say that my grandmother, my dad's mom, we call her Nana, she's 90 now. And so it was a big stretch for her, cognitively even, to tolerate the idea of losing a son and the idea of losing that son on purpose. And it definitely, there was friction around her morals um, and the idea that maybe, you know, God decides when your life is over or it's not meant to be something that you have a say in. And she's also really, really tough. So there's this idea that my dad's suffering, that he was supposed to endure that in some ways to help other people. Like you keep living through your pain because it's inspiring to other stroke survivors. And those are the kinds of conversations that we had to interface, which are so delicate and fragile around, you know, who, who did my dad owe it to, to stay alive? Thank you. And Jill, I know you'll correct me if I've misinterpreted this in your book, but part of how I read your own, uh, I'm going to say wrestling with your dad's decision to have made is that you hoped he would um, meet the criteria at the time. So he had that agency, but you also hoped that he might not decide to use that. Is that fair? 
That's entirely accurate. Yeah. And that really resonated with me when I read that in your book, because I think that was a big hope of Canadians or Canada in general when we legalized MAID. We saw that in Oregon, for example, that many people applied for assisted dying, but didn't actually go through with it. And it was just a helpful piece to know that they had that available to them if they wanted. We're seeing things different in Canada. We are seeing people apply and go forward with medical assistance in dying. So why do you think that is? Or why do you think that was the case for your dad? Why was it not this, I'm going to use an awful phrase, get out of jail card in the back pocket, but I've heard other people use that. I think that by the time my dad was asking to die, he really meant it. Because of his loss of language and because of how incredibly indestructible he was, I think he suffered so much before he ever let on that life in his body was more than he could or was willing to endure. And when I look back on it now, he died two months ago today. And I look back on it now and I can see differently how much he suffered. So from inside, uh, you know, when I was right up close to his recovery, I wasn't really feeling his suffering. I was just trying to keep him alive. And now when I look back, I think by the time he was ready to ask for that, it was no longer going to be something for his back pocket. He meant it. And he couldn't, he couldn't qualify fast enough. And I can't speak for, you know, on the masses, is that, is that the case for Canadian people? Like, are we so friggin' tough that by the time we're asking, it's because we really mean it, because we've already endured so much? Maybe it's also that it's not really normalized, as in there's no plan in place yet for advanced directives or things like that. So maybe that back pocket element of made will become more commonplace when people know you can say that long in advance that, you know, if this ever happens to me, please don't keep me around like that. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder that too. And in your book, it comes out loud and clear that your dad knew what he wanted, that the waiting period was a struggle for him, but there was a level of respect that your family system was giving for that process. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the Facebook post, because that's what sort of connected me initially with your story, Jill. And I really appreciated how the Facebook post went out, that your family was open and honest that Bill was going to access made, it was going to happen the next day, that you understood that not everybody agrees with medical assistance in dying, but at that moment, it didn't matter. Because what you were calling for were people to honor your dad. And you asked people to light candles. And I reminded of one post from somebody in Thailand who lit a bunch of candles and I think shared some stories. What other things did you hear as a result of that Facebook post or that calling out for community? Well, I'm so thankful, truly, for the 90-day waiting period in Track 2 made 
because, and we could talk about that separately, the challenges of that waiting and not knowing, but one of the things that it afforded me personally was a lot of time to prepare. And so I did send that Facebook message out with my sister very shortly before he died, but we had been thinking about it for weeks. Mm-hmm. And we had been thinking about, you know, oh, what, when it comes to the last night, like, what are we going to do on the last night? And my response was, like, you have a vigil, just like you would have a vigil after someone died. But that vigil after someone dies misses the opportunity to let that person see and feel the warmth of the community that's loving them so much in their passing. And so it did feel quite radical to us to be like, well, we know he's going to die and lots of people love him. And so wouldn't all those other people want the opportunity to celebrate him in the same way that we're going to celebrate him on the last night? And so I look back at the night of the vigil and incredible things happened. We had people come in person, hundreds of people come to the yard in person. They wrote letters to him. They brought pictures of him. We put them all in a cooler outside. Uh, people drank whiskey and we had a bonfire and there was this whole sea of support in the front yard. They lit the whole front yard on fire, sunk the candles in the snow. It was so beautiful. And then everyone who couldn't be there was sending us all of these photos of their candles burning wherever they were. So. There were people in Australia and people in Thailand, people in Spain, people in the UK, people in Ireland, people in South America. And the pictures kept coming of the candles just burning all around the world. And it was equally for my dad and for our family. I said in a post afterwards, like he didn't need that courage he knew what he wanted and he was just marching on through to the other side. Mm-hmm. We needed the courage from the community. We needed the candles. And they burnt through the night in the yard. The next day when he died, there were still candles burning in the yard. There was one that burned for five days. Wow. And my dad's friend had like fastened fishing rods to the side of it. So there was like this long candle with two fishing rods attached to it that burned for five days. And it was things like that that helped hold us as a family. It's very difficult. It's a really deep kind of love to be willing to let someone go that you're not ready to see go and know that that's what he's choosing. So it was a deep ask for us. And I think that the vigil brought some sense of ritual and some sense of community that is missing from death and dying experiences and conversations for so many families. Yeah. We often talk about one of the things that made affords people is the chance to, we use the word choreograph 
the ritual around death. And we talk about it in terms of music, in terms of food. This candle thing just sounds so amazingly beautiful. And I think because you know when the death is going to occur, that allows people to step up in different ways, as your story exhibits so well. Where was your dad in all of this? Like physically in the house? Was he looking out the window? What was happening with your dad at that moment? He was sitting in a chair in the living room and he could see out the window. We had hung this giant portrait picture of him and his friend and they're naked holding <laughs> fish in front of their like private parts, at, like strings of pickerel. So it's like all the way Thunder Bay. So like a giant, yeah, a giant poster size picture of my naked dad holding a stringer of fish in front of his genitalia was illuminated. Like I put a floodlight in it so it, it <laughs> could stay lit deep into the night. And then he was sitting behind that portrait and he could see out the people lining up to leave notes for him and the people lining up to light candles and put them in the snow. And he did in the early hours of the vigil, it started at 7 p.m. and we were making pizzas inside. So my immediate family was inside and we were, we were doing like homemade pizza. He was sitting in the chair and bossing us around. So it was his recipe and he could see the people coming. And then there were certain people who stopped by that really wanted to see him. And in the early bits of the vigil, I did let some folks in to sit with him for a minute and to chat with him. And he really wanted that. And one of the things at the end of my dad's life that he was struggling with so much were seizures. And they happened whenever he was kind of going over the top with effort. And so about an hour into the vigil, his eyes got really glassy and all the signs that like he was gonna start to go down started happening. And I did call it on the visitors then. And he moved into the bedroom he could still see the candles through the window, but he didn't last at the party as long as I think he wished he could have. Right, right. And knowing when to call that must have been very hard. It was. And the first few people that I would have really liked to let in to see him that I said actually were done was a feeling for me. And, and yeah, you don't get that. That's really vivid. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a real boundary and and there was no come back tomorrow kind of thing so that was real and then at the end of the vigil when everyone all the pizza eaters and the candle lighters had trickled out and we put out the bonfire before he went to bed that night he got up and me and my brother and my sister just stood in the bedroom window with him and we watched the candles for a long time and I said, this is, this is really nice, hey? And he was like, yeah, this is, this is really nice. To be surrounded by love. Yeah. And candlelight. He felt it. He felt it. I bet. And outdoor candlelight, what could be more quintessentially Thunder Bay in December? I've written a lot about how we used rituals and rites during the pandemic when things weren't necessarily at our fingertips that we would maybe reach for, Jill, in our quest to move forward with our grief. And what you've touched on there, you know, you talking about those messages coming in from all over the globe 
and those ideas that people would come and be prepared to be outside of the home, but then show photographs or show their feelings, light candles, etc. I think really speaks to that that need that we have to meet when we aren't able necessarily to congregate in the ways that we might have before the pandemic. I'd like to ask you a question about pizza and who was present in the home because you have mentioned your siblings and you did earlier comment on that you're all doing your best to adult. Were there family members there who were young? Kathy and I have the opportunity to speak with people about including children or adolescents or people who are maybe even like your Nana. You know, was the pizza an effort really to gather around and do something familial? Yeah. We were like, well, what do we make to eat on the last night? That's a tough call. And my dad used to always have flatbread Fridays and he had this flatbread recipe that was legendary dough. And he had his favorite things like gorgonzola or figs or caramelized onions and arugula. This was like the goodness of life was shown on Flatbread Fridays. So we decided to go with that for what we would do on the last night. And it was customary for us to have people over for that time. And usually my dad would just keep firing more pizzas than anybody could ever eat. That was sort of how it went. And so that's what we did with that evening. My Nana was there. My dad's sisters were there, the ones that were in town. It was in my mom's house. My dad had spent a lot of time there. They were divorced, but he had spent a lot of time there in his post-stroke life. And so he was really comfortable. It's also the house we all grew up in. So we were there. Some of my cousins were there, a couple close friends. And my brother and I both have small babies. So my son was, I think, seven months. And that would make my nephew about three months. And so we had two little babies, one crawling and one sort of like bouncer bound. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But It was so beautiful also to let my dad have time with the babies. And it was really grounding for us to have my Nana, who's a great grandmother, holding infants while we're processing losing a really central figure in our family constellation. And how did you decide on the date of December 6th? It was literally the soonest day allowed from when he was approved. And I remember when the doctor asked, you know, would you like to choose a different date? And he was like, nope, with like whatever the first one is. He was clear and knew what he, he wanted. He was clear, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The other thing I'll say about that, like he was clear about what he wanted, but my dad didn't understand dates and time anymore. He was always very confused about You know, if I said, you're not going to die for 45 more days, he didn't have any context for that. And very many times I would come home to visit him in that that last 90 days and he would say, but when is it? You know, and I think many days he woke up kind of thinking he was a lot closer to dying than he actually was. And I sort of worried that I would have to wake him up on December 6th and be like, it's today. You can die today. That part of it 
was really challenging for us. Sometimes, like I would say, I'm going to see you at Halloween. And he would say, no, I die. And I would have to say, no, dad, you won't be dead by Halloween. You'll be here for Halloween. And you'll be here for your 64th birthday on November 6th. And you'll be here, you know, when I get here on November 25th. And just trying to organize him in linear time and space was really emotional for us because he was ready to go. And we had to re-explain that to him often. I bet. I bet. And I got to ask this because in my work in palliative care, we often talk about how people will want to live for one last Christmas. Was Christmas ever part of the conversation? Needed not care. Zero. The time I got to spend with my dad post-stroke was the most intimate and emotional and connected I ever got to be with him. It was so deep and rich. And by the time he wanted to die, we were like, what about one more Christmas? And he was like, nah. And I was like, well, what about, what am I supposed to do? Like, I'm, what about how much I'm going to miss you? Do you have any tips for that? And he was like, nah. <laughs> like, he was really just like, you're on your own, kid. Like, we did our thing. And you get out there and do your thing. And I'm going this way and you're going that way. And there's no tips. You're on your own, kid. Yeah. <laughs> wow. In some ways, isn't that what we want for our children to launch? He had done his job. The ultimate launch. Wow. Wow. So I want to talk a little bit about the procedural piece, about how accessing made works. And in your book, you have this piece where you talk about connecting with the maid coordinator. And for any of our listeners who aren't in Ontario, many of our regions are linked with home and community care and have a maid coordinator, a central piece where family members such as Jill and Jill's dad can call and ask for an assessment. And it's often the maid coordinator who may not necessarily be a physician or a nurse to come out or by phone do the initial kind of discussion to get the ball rolling, so to speak, for the procedure to happen. And you write, Jill, in your book that when you and your dad, I'm thinking it was both of you together, met on the phone with the maid coordinator because it was during COVID. Was it via Zoom or on the phone? Yeah, the first meeting with the coordinator was on the phone. And actually, my sister, my aunt, my mom, and I were all on the call. I was in Toronto. And I think they were with my dad, and I was kind of satelliting in. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And the maid coordinator said that just because you want to die doesn't mean you get to die. And that's a really powerful statement to hear as somebody who is Canadian. We understand that the legislation is out there. It's now something that people should be able to access across our country. What did the maid coordinator mean when this was said to your family? It was a really jarring statement. I wrote it exactly like she said it. And it was because we were contacting that coordinator to say we would like to access an assessment to see if my dad might qualify for MAID. And, you know, he's really suffering. And I guess I have to clarify that 
My dad couldn't have these conversations. So what was happening is my aunt, my mom, my sister and I were calling in to give my dad a voice to say, we're wondering if he qualifies for this and could you come and assess him? And my dad had to do all the assessment stuff by himself, but he could never do the phone call to make the request. And so there was support he needed there. And so the comment from the coordinator was because three very articulate white women were saying, we want this service. And she was saying, well, just because you want it doesn't mean you get it. Like I'll kind of, I'll be the judge of that. And it sort of, you know, put us in our place. Not that we were enthusiastic about the request, but that we were there advocating for him. And she was really slowing us down and being like, that's great that that's what you want. And that's great that you have all this data to share on how much he's suffering. But truly, this is a process. And just because you apply does not mean that you qualify for access to this service. Okay. Okay. So again, that to me, in some ways, speaks to the safeguards that we are hoping are in place for Canadians accessing MAID. I interpret it when I read that in your book, thinking of some of the challenges that particularly people in Northwestern Ontario these days are having around accessing MAID. So even people who qualify have been assessed may not actually be able to access MAID and die sometimes before that happens because of lack of accessibility. Was that something that ever you encountered? Yes, that same first call it was made very clear to us that there's a shortage of providers, that there are more requests than they can often fill. And that coordinator told us that actually the only requests that they were granting in Thunder Bay at the time were track one requests, meaning that my dad would need to have a death in the foreseeable future as assessed by the doctors that he was certainly gonna die sometime soon. And we knew he wouldn't qualify for that. And she asked him that day if, she said, if I told you that you had to die within the next 14 days, and that's the only way that we could go through with this, would you say yes? And my dad said yes. So I was freaking out because I was thinking this was gonna be like a back pocket thing where it's like, we're going to give him his agency, we're going to give him his right to choice, and then he might not exercise that right for months or years or whatever. And then the first call ever, the woman said, well, if you want it, we'll probably have to do it in the next two weeks. So my sister and I were reeling after that call. It was really intense. And it was around the sort of first contact with the MAID program, kind of making it seem like this, there's, there's not a lot of space for you. We don't have a lot of time. If you want to die, you got to die quick. And there's not enough doctors to provide for all of these people making these requests. So that initial call really rattled us, actually. And then afterwards, we were partnered with a first assessor, and the doctor came in and went through that process with my dad. And it was very grounding. It definitely shifted gears he was placed in track two. We were told there would be a minimum 90-day wait. After the first contact with the coordinator, nobody else mentioned lack of 
time or lack of resources or like that they weren't going to be able to make this happen for him. But definitely like the gatekeeper up front uh, was a, like a good guard. <laughs> it's no easy entry here. Right, right. Probably up against a number of challenging systemic pieces that are happening. Can I ask a little bit about that first assessment? Was that done in the home where your dad was living at the time? Yeah, the doctor came into the assisted care home where my dad lived. I was not there in person, but my aunt and my mom were there and my sister and I again on speakerphone so that we could hear. And she came and I think she said her usual assessment time is like 60 to 90 minutes, but she was there with my dad well over two hours being so diligent around his language and making sure that she felt sure that he understood what they were talking about, that he meant what she thought he meant. And there were things that she needed to hear him say and express himself that I actually didn't think he had the capacity to do. Like she made him say, tell me what you can't do anymore that makes your life intolerable. Tell me what you can't do. And that's an open-ended question, which is really difficult for my dad as a stroke survivor. You can ask him yes and no things, or you can give him things to choose from, like do you want water or juice? And he could say water or juice. But if you ask an open-ended question, tell me what you can't do, I can't think of one that he ever really sufficiently answered for me. And in that assessment, he answered her. And I wished I had been recording it because it felt like he was rallying every single cell in his body to die. Like he was like, all right, if this is what it takes for me to get this, then I will make my brain tell you that I can't water ski, I can't fish, I can't hunt, I can't play hockey. And he did, he said all the things. And I remember I was in the car with my sister sobbing because I had never heard him be able to express himself so unprompted. Hmm. Jill, I think what you've done there so beautifully is illustrate something that came up on a cross-country discussion with people across Canada who were interested in discussing MADE, especially this track two, and how we're moving forward. There's so much anecdotal evidence. People call in with personal experience. And so much of the work that Kathy and I are privileged to do really focuses on that, the personal experience. And what I got from listening yesterday was this idea of case by case, because what happened with you and your family, of course, was that, as you say, you had this sentinel who kind of put it in very bold <laughs> um, configuring, nope, it's got to happen quickly, we're understaffed, it's, you know, access is an issue. And then, of course, had somebody come in and kind of speak between those lines that you had heard initially. What do policymakers, because of course now it's been tabled again, the legislation, what do policymakers and healthcare professionals, what can they learn from your family's experience? I think that's why I want to share this story so much, 
because when I watch the news coverage, the countrywide discussion about MAID, the policies, the access issues, the potential for MAID being misused or taking advantage of vulnerable people, there's been so much in the news about this, and I watch all of it, the coverage of all the ways that MAID might be a bad idea, or maybe we should slow it down, or maybe we should limit it. I don't see the media portraying individual family experiences, and MAID is an individual experience. It definitely needs public policy. It definitely needs overarching guidelines, but we're not providing MAID to Canadians all at once. We're providing MAID to people one at a time who will experience death and whose families will experience the anticipatory grief of losing them and then the grief of them being gone afterwards. And so policymakers need to be able to zoom in and out on the issue. We need to be able to zoom all the way into the experience of one family at a time based on what they're asking for and who the person is, what they're capable of, and then out to the larger safety issues, the sentinels, I love that you used that word, like, yeah, let's place all the guardrails up for sure, but not lose track of the fact that the service that we're trying to govern into existence in our country is a very individual experience, super intimate. And there's value in amplifying the stories, not just of the practitioners or the care providers. I've also seen lots of doctors talking about how providing made what that is for them professionally. But the people experiencing it are the people who are dying and the people who support the people who are dying. And it's thousands of families a year now. So we can't lose track of that. Mm. Jill, in your book, you use the analogy of water skiing and this idea that a rope, and I'm a non-water skier, but what I understand, a rope tethers the skier to the boat as the boat pulls the skier along. And you use this as a way of thinking about how we can be attached to life here on earth in our physical bodies. And your dad let go of the rope in what sounds like a very beautiful and meaningful death. And so can you tell us a little bit about that morning that your dad died? Yeah, I would love to. I had written all of that water ski content before he decided to die. And it was just such a huge part of what he loved and how he worshipped aliveness, being dragged around behind a boat. But as I had the time to prepare for knowing that I would write the last chapter after he died, I was thinking about that water ski analogy and it was a light bulb moment for me where I was like, oh, he's just going to let go of the rope. That's all he's asking to do. And... The morning that he died, he was scared. He woke up in my mom's house. It's not where he usually lived, but that's where he wanted to be. He spent that last night there with us. 
And a nurse comes a couple hours before the maid procedure and puts the IVs, one in each arm, so that when it comes time for the procedure, we're not dealing with having to do that. So a nurse came earlier in the morning and, and he was pretty anxious then. It was hard to watch. My sister and I were both there with him. Hard to get the needles in. He wanted to do it, but he was scared. And we had chosen his outfit. And he wanted to die in a tie-dye t-shirt, which he thought was really funny. And we got him in his outfit. I shaved his face and his head. Uh, we went in the bathroom together and did that ritual one last time. He didn't want to brush his teeth though. And I was like, yeah, fine, that's fine. Screw it, you don't have to brush your teeth again, but we're definitely gonna shave your face and your head. And um, we had a really kick-ass breakfast. We uh, made these really amazing breakfast sandwiches. We took some pictures. He spent some time with his grandsons. And it was really nice to not have to leave the house. No one came or went other than the nurses that morning and the doctor when she arrived. It was very nice to be at home. And that felt like a real privilege to be able to stay so contained as a little group navigating that time. And then we set up the couch for him. I had put a little prayer. I had written a prayer and, and tucked it under the blankets right where his bum would go. And uh, he lied down on the couch. He walked himself over and lied down on the couch when he was ready. And he lied there for a long time. We chatted. He wanted to be able to see this one picture of himself water skiing. He said it was perfect form, which <laughs> he would like make us laugh, like right, right up to the end of it, you know. And then we all like cozied up around the couch and said our goodbyes to him. We sang some songs. And then that was it. The doctor came in and it's like a medicine in a syringe. So you just kind of push them through the IVs in his arm. And she said, you know, he'll fall asleep. He'll get drowsy. He'll fall asleep. And then he'll stop breathing. And, and that's exactly what happened. He was snoring for a little while, which was really nice. We were just sitting there listening to him snore. Oh, lovely. I've never had perfect form as a water skier. But I can appreciate what he meant by that. But also, I think what really resonates for me as a very much a novice water skier is that when you're behind the boat, you give the driver signals, you know, go a little bit faster. I want to go back to the cottage. <laughs> I'm exhausted. This isn't fun anymore. Yes. Um, and so when I, re when I think about that, Jill, I think about him in that time after that stroke, giving the signals. Yes. Yep. Okay. Uh-huh. And then being able to say, because when you let go of the rope, I can actually viscerally feel those lovely moments when you just sink down into the water. And sometimes you're near the dock and sometimes you're not, but you're done. And I really appreciated that analogy. And I mean, just now you've said one of the last things he wanted to think about was that perfect form, you know, tongue in cheek or otherwise. And so how perfectly poignant and and him, right? How lovely. He was him right to the very end. He never stopped. And it sounds like you honored that part of him as well through the rituals that you provided, through the agency that you helped him to exercise and the home environment in which he eventually died. 
when you put out the obituary, when you had, I'm imagining some sort of after death ritual, what was that like to talk about it with others, knowing that not everybody is aligned with how your dad viewed the end of his life? I feel like the vigil sort of filtered that out for us. And so we had a celebration of life for him at the Foundry Bar in Thunder Bay. So my family owns it. So it was closed on a Sunday and we snuck in there. Foundry's first funeral, it was beautiful. And the people that came on that day were so supportive because we had been so transparent about what happened. And I feel like sometimes it can be a little confusing with obituaries. Sometimes people don't want to overtly say, this person died using maid, but I think it's really helpful. It just helps to filter out people who might have feelings about that probably shouldn't come to the celebration of life. It's not the place to debate our feelings about how he died. And so by the time we had our foundry funeral, it was only, uh, only the people that really wanted to be there and do that with us. And... It was quite lovely. I wish I had called it a celebration of death. And thinking about it afterwards, I was like, why do we always call it a celebration of life? Why are we not calling it a celebration of death? That's what he, that's what he did. He died and it was great. <laughs> yes, no, that's so true. And language is so important, isn't it? So important. Yeah, and it's, yeah, <laughs> it's a celebration of death and and death is not a failure. That was another yes. big thing that kept coming up for me around the way that we shared what was happening for my dad because he was so indestructible and triumphant and strong and just loved and he was awesome. And dying wasn't failing. We didn't have to portray it that way. And we didn't treat him that way for the last days of his life. We didn't treat him like he was about to fail. We treated him like he was triumphant. He was about to get what he needed. Well, I sense that uh, those two might be the title of your next book. Oh, I don't know. Teaser. Right? <laughs> no spoilers. And the Foundry might have a new marketing slogan, the Foundry Funeral. <laughs> yeah, celebrations of death. <laughs> exactly. That's incredible. Celebration of death because exactly that. It's not a failing. You've circled back so beautifully to that term, triumphant. He lived triumphantly and he left the earth in such a triumphant way. And how lovely that you and your family and your book are so open to having that explored. Loved into being and loved into death. Jill, is there anything that Kathy and I haven't brought to your attention during our talk that you'd really like to share with us, with our listeners? The only other thing that I think I would add, just for anyone navigating made for a loved one or trying to support someone who's making that decision, I know I painted a picture of the morning that my dad died, but I also want to say that the moment that he died the whole house was filled with such an extraordinary sense of relief. And death is scary. I'm scared of death. I wrote all about it in the book. And, and I don't, I think we're all scared of it to some degree. 
But that moment of watching him disconnect from that body that was so painful to be in was so much relief. And it wasn't just me that felt it. It was shared amongst everyone who was there with him. It was like we could all exhale like, okay, you don't have to be in there anymore. Hmm. And it was really, really important for his children to see that. I'm so glad that we all decided to be right there because no one could have offered me that sense of felt relief by telling me about it. I really had to just be right there and do that last exhalation with him and be like, yeah, that's better. Thank you. I think that's so important because it really speaks to, you were saying about that anticipatory grief and the fact that you could start grieving him knowing really that December 6th, there would be that release of him and of the space that you were holding for him. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And please have a gentle rest of your afternoon. Thank you for having me. This was such a needed conversation. Oh, good. You guys are amazing. Enjoy your afternoon. Thank you, Jill. Take care. Carolyn, I've got goosebumps. Uh, what, what a conversation. That idea that he was quintessentially Thunder Bay. I mean, you took me by the hand, told me that we were kind of dive into that space, but I really have a sense that Bill was quintessentially Thunder Bay. And a Thunder Bay legend. And to me, this drove the idea home that people are talking about medical assistance and dying. People are trying to access medical assistance and dying. People are experiencing it. It is touching all of us. I loved when Jill commented about policymakers and healthcare professionals zooming in to look at those individual experiences, because I think as we evolve, as MAID evolves, I loved what she said. It's not all Canadians are accessing MAID. It's a one at a time situation. And so, yes, those protocols, yes, that Sentinel, et cetera, et cetera. But how, how much we can learn from these rich experiences when made is accessed and not for you know lack of socioeconomic funding etc but in instances where it's accessed for what i think it initially was going to be about bill was suffering and when she tells us when jill tells that story about the physician coming in to do that assessment and how he was able to communicate that, I think that just shows how he was motivated and how he was ready to use the agency that he had to live until he died. Absolutely. And I also think that this is a family story. And when she shared about some of the things that they did in preparation for death, in terms of leaning out into the community and asking for love and asking for candles and asking for stories. That is something that I think we can all take a piece of and think about whether or not 
we are accessing made at the end of our lives or if we are allowing natural death to happen it's that community sense it's that coming forward and how we can welcome each other into that very important space and i for one will go forward and celebrate death me too and i look forward to our next conversation story.